Well, hey, it's so um, great to be with you. Does everybody understand my accent okay? No. No? I'm going to try my best. I could try to do the, like, British accent, but it would just be really offensive to everybody. So, anyway. Um, man, so just, just, just so you know, the feelings are mutual. Um, Andrew kind of put his heart out there and how much he loves us. And um, I don't want to feel like that first, you know, time when like a, a guy says to a girl, I really love you. And the girl just says, thanks. I, that's, and I don't like that I'm the girl in this scenario either. But um, the point is, the feelings are mutual. And um, Jill and I, we just have fallen in love with Andrew and C and their family. And subsequently, we've just fallen in love with you guys. And um, I haven't had a chance to meet all of you yet, but just so you know, our church prays for you a lot. Um, our church has seen um, videos of Andrew and C talking about you, and we just, man, we're just so full of faith for what you're doing. Uh, we have a, a saying in America that we say, like, we're in your corner. Does that translate? Do you guys know what that means? Like, we're rooting for you. We're in your corner, and um, anything you need, we're just... We're just a phone call or an email away. We just, we just so believe in what God is doing through you um, here in London. And um, yeah, we're, we're stoked to, to be with you this morning. Um, we're going to talk about um, today about what it means to believe in Jesus. And I just want to say, if you're here, I don't obviously know who everyone is. And so if you get awkward eye contact, just blame it on jet lag. Andrew hasn't like given me a you know, like list of people to stare at um, in the sermon. But... Um, <laughs> But like, here's, here's, what I, here's what I do, I do reckon. I do reckon that there's kind of a, a spectrum here of folks. You know, there's probably some folks here who are like, man, you've been Christians for a long time and, and that's amazing. We're glad you're here. Um, and then there's probably folks who are like newer to Christianity, only been a Christian for a little bit of time. And then there's probably even some folks in the room who are kind of checking Christianity out. You know, um, maybe your parents were Christians or your friends are Christians or some, someone you relate to or someone you work with is a Christian or something. It's led you to the point where you just want to at least have a look and see what Christianity is all about. And if that's you, man, we're so glad you're here. And I want to say this is a safe church for you to be in. This is a good place for you to be um, because this church is going to go out of its way um, to really show you what Christianity is and to love you through the process of figuring out who Jesus is and what it would mean to live for him. And so um, if that's you this morning, I hope that um, what you'll get out of this is, is maybe some answers to the, to the questions, why, why should people believe in Jesus? What does that even mean, right? What, what would that mean for my life? What, what does that look like? Um, and for those of you who are already Christians, I hope it will, it will stir your heart again for why we believe in Jesus and I hope it'll help maybe give you um, just, just some handles for why some of your friends or family members or coworkers struggle to believe in Jesus. Um, so we're going we're gonna to read a, just a, a very um, phenomenal passage of scripture this morning. It's, it's found in, in, in John 12. And before you get there, let me give you a little bit of context. Um, Jesus, um, ha, John's already presented for us the case for um, Jesus, just why he's, who he is as God. And then he begins this long section in the book of John where he, he tells story after story after story of Jesus meeting all kinds of different people, right? And he encounters these different people and their lives change. And so uh, if, if you're new to the Bible, one of the things that you probably think is that Jesus never met or encountered someone like you. And you would be so wrong. If you read the gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're going to see Jesus meeting people just like yourself, broken, jacked up, screwed up, messed up, confused people. Religious people, rebellious people, whatever you would describe yourself as, Jesus encountered all kinds of different people and their lives were transformed. And so John shows us that as we go through the book of John. And then, and then he begins to get into this, this section towards the end of Jesus's life 
where Jesus begins to call people to believe in him, really call people to believe in him. And then um, the, the passage we're going to read today is, is these are the last words that Jesus is recorded saying in his public ministry. After this, he, he goes away and he hides, he hides in secret with his disciples. Um, and we get five chapters of him just spending time with them, talking to them. And the next time that the whole world, the, the watching world gets to see Jesus, he's hanging on a cross. And so this is kind of a big moment, right? And so I would encourage you, no matter where you're at on that spectrum of believing in Jesus, to really lean in and listen, and let's just trust that God will speak to us, right? So um, uh, we're going we're gonna to read this passage and, and, and have a look at, at what it really means to believe in Jesus and, and why we should do that. Um, John chapter 12, starting in verse 37. Pay attention to this first verse. It's a really key one. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, for, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is a difficult passage, but it's also a very sad passage. It's a sad scripture. And if you're new to the Bible, you know, the Bible isn't all, you know, like happy little, you know, like moments to make you smile every morning. It's, it's full of rich emotion. There's some really just gut-wrenching, sad parts of the Bible. And this, this is a sad one. Um, this is, this is Jesus at the end of his ministry. And, and some of you might think, if you don't know much about Jesus, that, oh, he must have gone out with a real bang. It must have been like a big parade for Jesus and all the rest. But actually what we see here is, is Jesus expressing great sorrow all, over all the unbelief around him. Now, um, as, as, as modern people or as Western people, most of us think that, um, you know, the reason we don't believe in something is because we lack evidence, Right? And some of you might even be thinking, you know, if I had more evidence, I'd, I'd be a Christian, you know? Um, I even used to, I used to think like this. I used to think if I could go back in time, I mean, I grew up in church, but I wasn't really sure about Jesus there for a long time. I used to think if I could go back in time, if I could see Jesus walk on water, I believe. If I could see Jesus take, you know, fish and bread and feed, you know, 20,000 people with one kid's lunch, I'd believe. If I could see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, I would believe, Right? That's what I used to think. That's a, very, that's a very Western way of thinking. If we had more evidence, we'd believe. See, the problem is, is just that we lack the evidence, right? And so maybe that's you, but I, I, would, I think this passage right away will challenge that because that's not what we see. What we see here is these guys had plenty of evidence, plenty of evidence, and they still didn't believe. They refused to believe. 
in the face of stacks and stacks and stacks of evidence. They didn't believe in Jesus, right? Let's read that little first two verses again. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, right? John says they, they had all the evidence necessary. They had more evidence than you could ever want. I mean, the last thing Jesus has just done, he's just raised a guy from the dead who's been dead for four days. Jesus went out of his way to wait four days because, because in their culture, some people believe that the spirit of a, of a person hung around for three days. And so if Jesus would have raised Lazarus from the dead before the four days, maybe people would have thought, well, his spirit was still kind of hanging around. So Jesus intentionally waits to there's, he's dead, dead, to the point where this dead guy's sister tells Jesus, don't bother him, it's going to smell horrible. And, and, and adding to the emotion of us losing our brother, we don't also want to smell his rotten body. Jesus has just brought this guy back from the dead, and they still didn't believe, right? And so Isaiah, to, to, to help us understand why this would happen, he quotes a prophecy that was written you know, hundreds of years before by a guy named Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 1, we find these very words um, that, 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 Jesus, um, that we see referencing Jesus here in Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what the Lord has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And listen to what Isaiah says, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. And surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. John says that this passage is about Jesus and it went down just like Isaiah said it would. And, and in this, Isaiah shows us and John shows us a powerful reason for unbelief. And that's, that, that's a very powerful uh, reason for us. It's very relevant for us. It's the same reason why so many of our friends don't believe in Jesus. It might be the same reason why even some of you in the room don't yet really believe in Jesus. And that's that we don't believe because we, we, we just, honestly, we just want a different kind of savior. And maybe you've never even been able to verbalize that, but, but that's what was really coming through here. Isaiah, in this prophecy from hundreds of years before, he says things that appear very backwards, all right? He starts off by saying that the arm of the Lord is going to be revealed, right? And that sounds powerful, and that sounds mighty. I mean, if you've never thought about that, what, what imagery would pop in your head? The arm of the Lord is going to be revealed. I picture a giant like bicep coming out of the sky, like piercing the clouds and just like veins protruding and, you know, a bit, bit like Andrew's arm and not, not really maybe a different arm, but, but like this giant arm, this just like powerful. The arm of the Lord has been revealed and you just picture just might and just, oh my gosh, who wouldn't bow to that? But then the way he describes the arm of the Lord, he describes an, an individual who's weak who's abused, who's despised, who's sorrowful, who's not triumphant, who's beaten down, who's rejected. You think that's the arm of the Lord? And Isaiah is absolutely right. Who's going to believe this? Who's going to look at that and say, that? now that's the arm of the Lord. Now, see, there you go. Look how, look how weak and despised. That, that, of course that's the arm. Nobody's going to believe that, Isaiah said. Let's just be honest. I mean, it was, is that someone you'd vote for? Are those the adjectives we're looking for when we think about who to vote for and, and who we want to put our confidence in? They're weak, they're despised, they're rejected. Yes, that's who we want. Nobody wants that, right? Isaiah's right. No one's, gonna ever, no one's ever going to believe that. 
And so John's quoting that passage and saying, see, this is exactly what Isaiah said. Now, let's pause because some of you, you may not still be tracking. Let me give you some, let me just give you something to think about. Have you ever gone out of your way to do something for someone or to bless some people and it was just not received well? Um, you know, maybe it was you, you wanted to prepare a meal for someone special, your mom or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse or, or whatever. And you just went out of your way um, to do this and it just didn't really get the accolade, the applause that you were hoping for. Um, I, I dive and, and spearfish. I hope that's not offensive. Um, I, I feel like everything I do is offensive. So I, I just want to write it off that it is offensive. Um, the first time I met Andrew and C, I was, I was speaking at a, a conference here in England, and I mentioned that I was just taking my son swan hunting. And uh, you could hear the air leave the room. I mean, it was, it was bad. Um, so... Um, so, but let's just pretend, pretend it's not offensive for a second that I spearfish, okay? I dive on shipwrecks and I spearfish and there's sharks and there's barracuda and there's all that stuff, right? And um, then I, I bring this fish home and often my favorite thing to do is to cook this fish up for friends, right? And so imagine you get invited over to our house. I've gone and faced, you know, ferocious sharks and waves and water and I've risked my life and I bring this fish home and I, 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 then I clean it you know, and then I, we, we prepare it and we brine it in buttermilk. It's amazing. And then we fry it because we're American. And um, <laughs> you fry fish too, so don't, don't get all judgmental. Um, and then I, I serve this to you. And, and like your response to me is, this is fine. But like, do you have, there's like, um, I used to, there's a little bag of like frozen fish. And uh, is, there, is there any of that around? Because that is my like thing. That's my, I like frozen, freezer burned, trash fish you know, from God knows where, you know, caught God knows when, like, that's my favorite kind. Like, if, that, if you said that to me, and I'd gone through all that work to prepare them, you're, you're, you're dead to me, right? I don't want to see you again. I, I don't, I, like, honestly, like, if you're in heaven, fine, like, I'll, I'll wave, but I'm not, we're not hanging out, right? Um, so imagine that's kind of what happens to you. You, you, you slave over something, you, you, you go out of your way to do something for someone, and what they say is, like, thanks, but do you, you got anything else? Is McDonald's here, or is it around the corner, or, like, is that... Like that's that, I, I tell you that because in the life and in, in the death of Jesus Christ, the arm of the Lord, the mighty arm of the Lord is revealed and people say, no, no thanks. No thanks. I mean, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen, we have seen his glory, glorious of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the mighty, the, the mighty arm of the Lord revealed. And what we find is that those people and these people don't want a man of sorrows. We want a man of strength. That's what we want. We want that bicep from the sky. We don't want a man of sorrows. Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He goes on and says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, listen to this, both Jews and Greeks, no matter what they were originally seeking, to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When rightly understood, though, the, the, the gospel, it sounds crazy to this natural mind that we've been born with. I mean, these guys are doing the math right. If our king is, and our Messiah is lowly and unmajestic and unattractive and humble, then that means 
it might mean that we have to stop living life for ourselves. It might mean that we have to stop living lives where we want to be exalted. It might mean that, that we need to be humble, and, and we don't want to be humble. We want to be exalted. Because everybody wants to be exalted, right? We're obsessed with it. How many people follow me on this and that? How many people comment on this thing I said? And how many people like this photo? I'm mean, obsession with being exalted. So Jesus comes, and they dismiss him. They say, we'd rather have something else. One way that, that some, some people put it in the, in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible is they said, give us a king like all the other nations. We don't want this king like you present yourself, God. We just want a king like everyone. Give us a Herod. Give us a Caesar. We don't want a savior who dies for our sin. We want a savior that makes us rich. We want a savior that makes us powerful. We want, to make a, savior, we want a savior that makes us loved in this world. That's the, if that's the kind of king that you and I want, one that promises to make us rich quick, man, Jesus will frustrate us. Because you'll read the Bible trying to get that from Jesus, and, and all you'll see is him saying things like, hey, those deepest things you want, those possessions you want, you can get them and still lose everything. In fact, it would be better for you to give those things away. Like you're more blessed if you give them away than if you receive these things. You'll, say, you'll, you'll hear him say things like that, and you'll go, Jesus, you're an idiot of a king. You, frankly, you're an idiot of a king. You don't know that what I really need is more stuff and more money. And you'll reject him, right? If you go into the scriptures and you're looking for a Jesus who makes you powerful, you'll read about a Jesus who tells you to turn the other cheek when you're struck. And you'll say, see, you're an idiot of a king. You're an idiot. That's not, that's not what makes people powerful at all. Or you, you go in and say, oh, Jesus, I want you to tell, tell me how to be loved in this world. And he'll say, He'll say, to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you. You'll say, you're, you're just an idiot. Frankly, that's all you are, Jesus. You're an idiot of a king. Unbelief, it looks at the saving glory of God. Jesus, the mighty arm of the Lord revealed and says, no thanks. And John continues and shows us how, how bad this really gets. In John 12, verse 39, he says, therefore, in their rejection of Jesus, is therefore, they could not believe. They did not believe. Now they cannot believe. He's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their heart. John says they decided that Jesus wasn't the kind of savior they wanted. And they, their, their heart became hard. Their eyes became blind in their unbelief. They didn't believe, you know, because uh, Jesus didn't fit their view of glory. And now they, they can't. They can't believe because their hearts are hardened. And what this shows us, guys, is that rejecting Jesus makes your heart very hard. John's quoting a passage here from Isaiah 6 that's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And it's a very important passage, a very controversial passage, because it doesn't say that they closed their eyes and they hardened their heart. They didn't look at Jesus and go, no thanks, Jesus, we're going to harden our heart. Mm, Hard, you know? That's not what it says here. That would make sense in our head. Oh, so they chose to harden their heart. No, it says God hardened their heart. Now, I I, want to just confess that I don't think John here is trying to solve some tension for us I think he's presenting to us a very powerful tension. In the next phrase, he says, you know, if they would understand with their heart, God would turn and heal them. I think what he's trying to do is show us this, this, these, these tensions in play here between belief and unbelief. We, we see God's sovereignty, God's control, God's ability to, 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 to be Lord in the situation and our own personal responsibility as people who reject Jesus. And so we could spend time going, well, did God choose to harden their heart? Did they choose to harden their heart? Both. Both seem to be very present here. God's sovereign over it, and they're totally responsible for it. 
And if you're new to Christianity, I just want to, just a little, just a little, little thing here. Being able to hold things like that in tension and say both. Both, it's a mystery, but both. It takes a lot of maturity. And the quicker you get there, the better. Because the Bible will give you things that need to be held in tension. And, and we just want, we just want, we'd rather fight, endlessly fight about this or that or this or that. And sometimes it's just, it's just both. It seems to be here that a very clear sense of God's sovereign over this situation. He's Lord over this situation. And yet they're, they're held totally accountable. They're very responsible for it. The religious leaders here, they made it clear they didn't want Jesus. And God's judgment on them is giving them what they wanted, not Jesus. In Romans 1, we, we see this played out where, where people get what they want, where they're turned over to getting what they want. And it's frightening. It's frightening, that, 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 that scenario that God would actually give us what we want. In Romans 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's using creation as this, this evidence for who God is. It's stacks and stacks and stacks of evidence for who God is. And why it's, 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 it's so, it would be so easy for us to look around and go, of course, of course. And he's, he's saying that as people don't believe this, the, this effect happens in their heart where they get hard. Jesus, guys, is not someone that you just put off and put off and put off and think it has no effect on your heart. Your heart is getting harder and harder. The longer you say, you know, so, so what happens is like a lot of times we'll say to Jesus things like, well, hey, Jesus, you know, I understand I should live for you and love you and all that, all that. But listen, I'm about to go to university and Jesus, let's just be honest. You know how that is. It's going to be a lot of parties, a lot of stuff going on. And I don't want to be that one guy or that one girl who's not going to the parties because I'm a Christian. I mean, let's just let's give it a break for four years or however long I'm going to be in university. I'll go take care of that and then we'll, we'll get together, right? Get to university, said, Jesus, man, I just, you know, I know I should be, I know I should be going to church and reading the Bible and all that stuff, but I got to get my career up and running. And man, it's going to, I'm going to have to do a lot of sin in here. I mean, I need to like push a lot of people out of the way so I can get to the top. Of course, you understand it's London, it's busy. I got to get there. I got to succeed. Okay. So let me just get, just get my career sorted out. And then when I get a family, we'll, we'll get back together, right? We keep, we keep acting like that's how we can treat Jesus, thinking that nothing's going to happen to this heart of ours. And it's getting harder and harder and colder and colder and our eyes are getting blinder and blinder. Instead, John says, be like Isaiah who first said all this. Isaiah, he, saw, he, he, said, he said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. And what he's saying is something profound. He's saying that Isaiah, hundreds of years ago, saw Jesus. He saw his glory. And we see that in Isaiah 6.1. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. And verse five, he says, and I responded and said, woe is me, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He sees who Jesus is and he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, let's get back together. I'm going through a tough time right now. The king just died. Let's get back together in a few years. He, he sees who Jesus is and he responds to him. That's what it looks like to believe in Jesus. 
Either our heart softens and we humbly respond to him, we, we believe in him, or we harden our hearts towards him. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says it like this. He says, we're the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That's what we are. We're the aroma of Christ to people who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says, to one, we smell like death, and to the other, we smell like life. In my town, um, our our economy is built around seafood. And um, there's a part of our town where all the, 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 the boats come in, you know, from fishing all day and people buy fish and there's fish markets and all the rest. And it smells like fish, okay? Um, no surprise there. But, but what, we, what we, we can tell who's from where we are and who's not from where we are because the people who come in and go, ooh, this stinks, it smells like fish, are just not from where we are, right? Because local people like myself, um, we, have, we have always said, it doesn't smell like fish, it smells like money. That's what people where I'm from say. They're like, oh, it smells like money. So we smell it, like we can smell the fish, and oh, it smells like money. Because we know that fish is our economy, right? That smell it is offensive to somebody who's not from where we are. It smells like stinky fish. I want to get away from it. But to us, we're like, man, thank God for those fish. That's why we have, that's why we have economy, right? That's why we have money. And so in a very, that's, that's a very silly example of what Paul is saying here. Was he's saying this smell, it's not, it doesn't leave you neutral, Jesus has an aroma, and it either it smells like life or it smells like death. It doesn't smell neutral. It doesn't smell vanilla. It doesn't smell like, oh, that's, I don't know, maybe. I don't know if I kind of like it or not. You either like the smell of fish or you hate the smell of fish, right? And what Paul's saying here is Jesus, that he has an aroma, and it either smells like life or death. That's the effect it has on your heart. And when you encounter him, you're not left neutral. Okay, so unbelief that rejects Jesus as unimpressive or unnecessary, grows harder and resistance and terrifying. But that's not even to me the worst part of this. What, what John says next is, is just, it's just, just mind-blowing. And I really want you to lean in because remember where we started, which was this, they, they had all this evidence and they still didn't believe. Now John tells us why. And John 12, verse 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees. They did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. John's telling us here what's at the very heart of their unbelief. And it's not a lack of evidence. It's not what we'd expect. We, we, we don't believe and they didn't believe because we love the wrong things. At the end of the day, it's not about evidence. It's about what our heart loves. And John shows us here that they had a kind of belief like in their head. They looked and saw all the miracles and thought, well, this makes total sense. But that never made it to their heart. It just stayed head knowledge. It just stayed right information. Like they, they could see and acknowledge these miracles. I mean, there's moments where they say, well, this, it had to be God, right? Look at all these miracles. Who else could do this? But God, but, but their heart, in their heart, when it came down to it, they love the wrong things. That word loved, it's, it's to prefer, it's to long for, it's to take pleasure in. And what John says is they took pleasure in, they longed for, they preferred the wrong thing. At the end of the day, right? And, and here's what you need to see. It's, it's, this, this, loving the wrong thing can destroy your soul. Really, it can destroy your soul. John says this is what unbelief can actually look like. And it's terrifying as a group of people sitting in a, a church, on a Sunday, this is terrifying to me, that unbelief can look like agreeing with all the right information, but having totally disordered affections. 
That in our head we could say, mm, yeah, it makes sense, but in our heart we could say we'd rather love something else. That that is what unbelief could look like is terrifying to me as a Christian. Because that means I could sit here with you and I could answer all the right answers on a quiz and say, of course, of course, of course, of course. But in my heart, I could be like what Jesus says, where he says, see, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else. It's far away from me. That's what, that's what unbelief can actually look like. People can call themselves Christians, but have, have minds that believe the right things and hearts that love the wrong things. And so the question about whether we believe in Jesus or not, really, is not whether we go to church on a Sunday morning. Oh, I've made it. No, it's what does our heart love? That's what it comes down to. What's the, this, what we love, and this is the most important thing about you. If you don't know what you love, you don't really know yourself. What you love is the most important thing about you. It defines the whole trajectory of, the, of your life. It determines who you will be and, and what you'll do and, and, and where you'll compromise or where you'll hold the line. It determines everything about you. And John says these religious leaders, they love the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. What, what he's saying is that what people thought about them mattered more than what, what would glorify God. And these are two very opposing parties. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 1, he says, am I now trying to seek the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And what he's saying is that these two are far apart from each other. You either li- live to see man think you're awesome or you, you live to glorify God. Those are the two options, right? He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not even be a servant of Christ Jesus. These things don't work together. What are you laying in bed thinking about at night? When you go to bed, what, like, what causes you to, to stay awake or to fall asleep? Are you thinking to yourself, people like me. They like me. Okay, I can rest now. If that's what's driving you, people, people are my friends on social media and people invited me to their birthday party and people want to be around me. If that, like, that's the driving like, nature of our life, we love something. That's, that's, that's the approval of man. We, 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 and and it, it will make us to where we, we alter our whole life around doing the things and getting the things that man think are glorious. And we'll live lives like this. If I don't have blank, well, people are going to think I'm nothing. But if I have blank, people are going to think I'm something, right? It's just, that, that's something for all of us. Now, as a kid, it's like really easy to point out. Because it's like, as a little kid, it's a toy. And the little kid comes and says, I, everyone's got the toy. I don't have that toy. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm there. And, and you can tell as a parent till you're blue in the face, you're someone in Jesus. And he, you can sell this stuff, but like the kid just wants the toy, man. He just, he just needs that toy because if he has that toy, every other kid's going to think, you're all right. You got that toy. And he gets a little older, you know, starts approaching teenage years. And it's not a toy anymore. It's a relationship. Everyone else has a relationship. I don't have a relationship. What's wrong with me? Everyone's going to think something's wrong with me because I'm not in a relationship with someone. If I was in a relationship, people would say, well, you're normal. You're okay. We'll accept you because you're in a relationship, right? And then it gets to like be a car or it gets to be college or it gets to be a job. It gets to be all kinds of things. And, and it just, as an adult, you and I don't outgrow that, by the way. We just get a lot better at hiding that. We're just way better at hiding that. When I was in, when I was in high school, um, it was a cell phone. Let me date myself for you. This is how old I am, right? I went to Dinarama last night, and all I could think was, on top of the fact that it was cool and it was good food, I was thinking, it's loud and it's late. And then I was like, I'm old. I just, <laughs> that's what happened. So when I was a kid, nobody had cell phones. My senior year of high school, my last year in high school, I got a cell phone. And I had 45 minutes a month on my plan, which meant when you called me, I was like, I'll call you back. 
You come out, I can't, I can't dunk. I'll call you back. Like, that's all I could do, right? But y'all, I felt like a rapper, man. I felt like I, felt like I should be on MTV because I had a cell phone, man. I would, I would flash that baby like everywhere I went. Now I've got a cell phone now that I can talk to, right? I, 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 was, I walked around London yesterday like a boss because my, my phone told me where to go. Like I looked as local as anybody else, minus I was staring at my phone to figure out where to go. But um, the point is, as, as an adult, you, you don't outgrow that. If I only had this, I'd be something. People would think I'm something, but if I don't have it, I'm nothing. We just get better at hiding that, right? I spent some time recently with men who were considering being in ministry. And we all, at the end, after several days together, we just spent time confessing the reason behind the reason why we'd want to get in ministry. Well, if I'm in ministry, people think I'm something. Maybe God will, maybe God will like really have to treat me better because I mean, I'm one of like the guys and people will think I'm arrived and I'm holy and I'm better than, I mean, we just confessed all these reasons behind the reasons why we'd want to be a pastor. That's how our heart's bent and it's messed up, man. When you start really looking at what drives your heart, you'll start feeling like I feel. I'm a, I'm a pretty screwed up person, right? Naturally, something's messed up inside of me. Think about that. Think if you can identify what's driving your life. What do you really believe? Because that's what you really love. What you really love is what you really believe. Is it the glory of man? Or is it the glory of God that's defining your life? I can go to bed at night because I might have relational trouble. I might have financial trouble. I might have emotional trouble. I might have physical trouble. I can go to bed at night. I can close my eyes and sleep because... God has said that he loves me and he's for me that he's coming back for me, that he's going to work all things out. I mean, is that the like, is that the stuff you know in your head or is it the stuff you know in your heart and, and it, it, like it leads to you being able to sleep at night? Like everything, you can lose everything and you're, and you're like, well, I haven't lost what's most important, right? Like what happens, see? Loving the wrong things makes you blind, makes you encounter Jesus and reject him because you love a different kind of glory. So that's what John has to say about unbelief. But thank God that's not how this passage ends. So quickly, as we look to close, Jesus now is about to go away with his disciples. He's going to have Passover with them. The next time the world sees him, he's on the cross. And Jesus now is about to say a few things before that happens. And you might imagine yourself, it starts off with, there's all this evidence and people still don't believe. Drum roll, please. Here's Jesus going to lay the smack down. Man, he is going to roast these guys. He's going to say something like, well, forget you guys, and I'm going to burn this place to the ground, and I'm going to, you know, you'll be sorry in the end. I mean, what's Jesus going to say? Or is Jesus going to take a different tack and say, you're right, you just needed more evidence. I'm sorry I let you down. I, I should have done more miracles. I should have walked on more water. You know, what should I have done? You know? What's Jesus going to say? How's Jesus going to respond to people having all this evidence and rejecting him? This is how he responds. In verse 44, he cried out and said, Whoever believes in me. The way Jesus responds to a bunch of people saying, we don't want to believe in you, is he says, believe in me. Jesus pleads with us to believe. That word cried out is not really a fair term. Because what, really, what the word really means, it's the, it's, the, it's the word that would describe a raven's piercing cry. It's a caw. Like if a person were to do this, it would, be, it would basically come out as like a scream or a or shriek. Your voice would break. It's to use inarticulate sounds that express deep emotion. So Jesus didn't say, well, if you guys want to believe me, go ahead. I guess it's okay if you want to believe me. 
Now he, he shouts like a wild animal, voice breaking, believe in me. That's how Jesus responds to people not believing him. He cries out. And he pleads with us to believe in him and to consider three reasons why. The first one, he calls us to believe in him because of his identity, because of who he is. He says this twice. He says, believe in me. Believe in me because of who? Because of who I am. I'm God. Believe in me because of who I am. The way to, to God is me. Like if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. I mean, he said this again and again and again. There's only one way to God. It's me. And so it's please believe in me because if you believe in me, you're believing in God. Like you're, I, I, that's it. That's how this works. I, he's pleading with us not to miss him because to miss him is to miss God. That's the first reason. The second reason that Jesus calls out for us to believe in him is because of his salvation. He's not just God. He's not just your creator. He's your creator who's crying out to you. He's the one who, who planned this from the beginning in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden when our first parents sinned and ripped the world apart. And Jesus says, look, a life without, a life without God is a life in darkness. And I've come not, to, not just to glorify myself as a good teacher, right? Not just to do that, but, but I've, I've come to bring you to God and to save you from the darkness of separation from God. He says that in verse 46 and 47. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. I've come into darkness to bring light. We're in darkness, and he's not just saying, you're a bunch of people in darkness. He's saying, I want to make things clear for you. I want to show you who you really are. I want to show you who God really is. I want to show you what life's really all about. He doesn't just plead with us to believe in him because he made us. He pleads with us to believe in him because he died on a cross for us. He's not just the all-powerful God who created the world. He's the God who came down to this broken world and died to save it. And then he ends with a very sober moment. He doesn't just call us to believe in him because he's God and because of his salvation. He says one last thing. He calls us to believe because of the consequences of unbelief. This part is usually conveniently left out. Jesus says this in verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. What Jesus is saying is there are consequences. We're held accountable for how we respond to who he is and what he said. We're accountable for what we do with these words of love. N.T. Wright says this, when Jesus speaks the words of love, the words of God, the words that, we sh- that should heal the world, people who reject those words will find themselves confronted in the end by those very words they've heard, the words they can't pretend they didn't hear. And all that to say, guys, this, this really just, just demands a response. This, this doesn't leave us neutral. This doesn't leave us going, okay, what's for lunch? Like some, there's, this, is, this is big stuff here, right? This isn't, I went to church, check, did that, I'm such a good person. No, this, like, this means something for our hearts. So let me just speak to those in the room who are already Christians just briefly. Some of you guys are doing a phenomenal job at, 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 at passionately telling everyone you know, calling everyone you know to believe in Jesus. I mean, Jesus here is, is not meek and mild about this. He's screaming like a wild animal. And some of you are doing a, 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 a very good job of that. You're, you're what we would call on mission. You see your life, your family, your friends, your coworkers, the people who are stuck on the tube with you, the people everywhere you look, you see those people as people God put in your life so that you could tell them about how great he is. And, and I want to commend you for that. And I want to call you to multiply yourself again and again and again in this church for the sake of Jesus' name in the city. I know that the way this city works is that, that every year a group of you will leave. 
I understand that. And I grieve as a fellow pastor with Andrew that he has to go through that. Here's what I would commend to you. Reproduce yourself. And and if you're going to leave, reproduce yourself at least once. Right? Here's the other thing I would say. Maybe God's going to call some of you to stay. And others of you, he's going to call to come back. Because this, this city needs churches like this church so that this city can, can know how great Jesus is. And so I know that in your heads, you come to London, you go to school, and then you leave. I'm calling you to consider other options. Maybe Jesus would have you stay. Maybe Jesus would have you come, come back. And for all of you that are leaving, I think Jesus would definitely call you to reproduce yourself. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian and you don't talk about Jesus. You're very quiet and private about your faith. That's just not what we see in Christianity. It's personal, but it's not private. And we treat Christianity, a lot of us treat it like it's a visit to an embarrassing clinic. You know, we got to go way out of town, you know, get a different name and a different ID. We don't want anybody finding out we ever went there. You know, like that's how we get about how Jesus, like what Jesus does. Oh, I can't talk about it. It's very personal. No, it's personal. It's not private. The, like, read the stories of Jesus encountering people. Like, we're reading their stories, by the way. Woman caught in the act of adultery. Yeah, we're reading about her. Like, her, like that, that thing went viral, right? <laughs> and what I want to commend to you is that what Jesus does in your life to you is meant to go viral. It's not a secret. It puts on display how good Jesus really is. And so Jesus cries out, breaking, shrieking voice, believe in me. And I just want to challenge you if you're a very quiet person who doesn't want people to know about you. I want to just say, where do you, where do you get off? Where do you get off treating the gospel like that? Again, if I made awkward eye contact with you, it was either God's sovereignty or my jet lag. But <laughs> finally, um, th- those of you here who don't yet, you're not yet Christians. You're not yet really believing in Jesus. And maybe you're, you, you answered at the beginning of this thing. You went, oh, I'm a definitely Christian. And through this, you've gone, oh my gosh, maybe I'm just like, maybe it's just in my head. Because I kind of, I don't know that I've ever like, I don't know it's ever really gotten in my heart where I've said, I, I want to, I prefer him and I prefer what it means. I, 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 I love him. Like I want to live for him. Like it's just in my head. I'm like, oh yeah, he's, a, he's God. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Check, check, check. What's next? It never got in your heart. Maybe you're hearing you're going, I didn't believe any of that. And I'm still kind of like scratching my head with some of it, but like something's gotten in my heart. I want to call you to consider that maybe today, right now, today, Jesus is calling you to believe in him. And you're going to, in your heart, you're going to, you're, in your head, you're at least going to go, oh, sometime later. Oh, sometime later. If this is really happening to you, if this is really what's happening to you, like Jesus is calling you, like he wants to save you right now, another thing that's going to happen is all the other loves in your heart are going to be shouting at you. Don't leave us. Don't leave us. No, that love for stuff, that love for power, that love for fame, that love for glory, that love for education and, and prominence in your career, that's, that's going to really, I promise it's going to, just give us one more chance, right? That's all this tug of war is happening inside of you. And, and if you look over your shoulder and judge them, you'll, you'll see that they're liars, C.S. Lewis, one of, your, one of the greatest products of this nation, said this, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers. And those things, the Bible calls them vain idols. They promise they can save, but they're, 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 they're empty. They're unable to fulfill their promises. And Jesus can deliver on what he says. He can satisfy you, that, that, that deep part of you that, that, longs, that longs to be loved, that longs to be satisfied, that's, that's only something Jesus can do. And to believe in him is the only way there. And so I want to just ask you as we, as Andrew comes up to 
walk us through response to remember this Jesus Isaiah puts forward for us. He was despised and rejected. He was whipped. He was crushed for our sins. You, you aren't being called to come to a king who tells you to wash his feet. You're being called to come to a king who washed your feet. You're not coming to a king who tells you to die on the cross and maybe he'll love you. You're coming to a king who said, I died on the cross because I love you. Like, this, this, is, this really demands a response. So let me pray for us as Andrew comes up. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. I pray that, God, you give us clarity today. One, what it means to believe in you. And two, are we really doing that? Is that what we really do? Do we believe in you? Change us today, Lord, as we, as we look to respond to your word. Amen.